So last weekend, we started a sermon series on the life of King David called a heart check. And the reason we're calling it a heart check is because in the scriptures, David was described as a man who had a heart after the Lord. In fact, Paul himself talked about it when Paul was speaking in the synagogue in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. And he said this, and when he, God, had removed him, Saul, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, would you read these words with me? I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So last weekend, we were introduced in 1 Samuel 16 to King David, or he was shepherd boy David at that time. And he was the boy who had been forgotten in the fields, and as Samuel comes to anoint the next king, God reminds Samuel and us that God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And he looked at David's heart. In David, he found a man after God's heart. And what that means to be a, a man or woman after God's heart is it means to have a heart that's in rhythm with God's heart. That our heart beats as God's heart beats. And then we looked at the, the quote from Michelangelo about the sculpture where Michelangelo said a sculpture is already complete within the marble block before I even start my work. That sculpture is already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. And so it is that God does that same work on us. That he has created us and in the waters of baptism recreated our hearts to be new hearts. And each day he seeks to chisel away the superfluous material. So if that's what it means to have a heart after the Lord, then over these next few weeks, so we're going to look at what are the specific characteristics then that it means to have a heart that's after God. As we talk about it today, uh, I want to introduce our topic by showing this short video. So uh, as you watch this video, um, I'll narrate it for you, but it's going to ask you to uh, play along with the video. So this is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? How many passes does the team in white make? 13, 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? Yes, we're gonna see it again. So did you see the moonwalking bear? I will help you. Just wait, just wait. There he is right there. You see him, he's moonwalking. It is easy to miss something you're not looking for. This was done in the UK as a advertisement for cyclists because cyclists were being hit by drivers on the road because they weren't looking for them. You always miss what you're not looking for. But it really speaks to distraction, doesn't it? And how many of us face distractions in our life? In fact, we all face that or we all deal with people who are distracted. Uh, ever dealt with a distracted driver who's on their iPhone? Right? There are distractions all around us. And the reason we're gonna talk about that is, is because we're gonna see in our text one who was distracted and another who is not distracted in the midst of facing an overwhelming enemy. And the truth is, is that you and I, we face overwhelming enemies. And when we face overwhelming enemies, distractions are deadly in the face of an overwhelming enemy. There's an old adage, and I've said this before to you, where people, well-meaning people will say to you, you know what, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. 
And many of you know that's not true. Because you've gone through the brokenness of a relationship, you've gotten the diagnosis of cancer, you've faced overwhelming enemies in your life and said, I cannot handle this. Moses, why did Moses keep crying out to God, God, I'm tired of this people? Because he had an overwhelming task that he couldn't handle on his own, but only by the grace of God. So today we're going to ask this question, how do we defeat the overwhelming enemies that are in our lives? How does that happen? Because we will face overwhelming enemies. And we're going to look at that in the words of 1 Samuel chapter 17. So if you'd like to follow along, I encourage you to open your Bibles up. Page 239 in the Bibles in front of you, page 239. Um, today I'm not going to put the full text on the screen. So if you do want to follow along, I encourage you to open the Bibles up. Page 239, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now this is a story that is a very familiar story to most people. Probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible, probably alongside of Noah's Ark. In fact, whether you are a Christian or not, you probably know this story. And it's referred to in all sorts of different realms, especially the sports world, where oftentimes if you have a, an underdog team, a, a smaller team that's playing a big powerhouse, they will say this is the typical David and Goliath story. You probably heard that on ESPN or on, uh, during a football game. It's the David and Goliath story. But I need to tell you that this story has very little to do with Goliath. It is not David and Goliath. In fact, if you read just in context, 1 Samuel 16 all the way through 1 Samuel chapter 31, there are always two characters who are being compared. It's always about David and Saul, David and Saul, David and Saul. And this is another text that begins the comparison between David and Saul. Goliath is just the comparison point between David and Saul. And this is not an underdog story. As you read through this text, as we look at it today, you will understand that there is so much more to this text, so much, uh, such a deeper meaning to this text than just an underdog story. 1 Samuel chapter 17. At the very beginning, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, we're introduced to the Philistines. Well, who are the Philistines? Well, the Philistines were probably from Greece, maybe from the island of Crete, they think. And uh, they had come over... And they had settled into the southwestern part of Israel and Judah, the Promised Land. They had actually gone to war at one point with Egypt, and Egypt defeated them. Uh, it was believed that at times the Egyptians used the Philistines as mercenaries. And they settled into these five major cities that you see on the screen. Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Gath. And so that's where they settled and they became a thorn in the side of the flesh of the Israelites. And they were a, a, a technologically advanced people. Technologically advanced at that time means they were iron workers. The Israelites were not iron workers. They didn't have that technology or capability. And we'll read that a little bit later. So if they needed their, their weapons, well, they really didn't have weapons, or if they needed their farming tools sharpened, they would have to go to the Philistines and the Philistines would overcharge them. They controlled things at that point. Israel, on the other hand, was not a well-armed, well-trained army, not like the Philistines were. In fact, if you remember from last week, we said that Israel was a tribal confederacy. It's not until 1 Samuel chapter 14, about verse 50-ish, where we see that 
uh, Saul begins to collect an army. He has mighty men that he begins to attach to himself, but they don't really have a standing army. They're tribes that are kind of on them their own. And there is no real army, which means that when we have this text of, of the Israelites who are standing on one mountain, while the Philistines are standing on another mountain with the Valley of Elah in the middle, you have to picture the Philistines as a well-armed army with swords and spears and armor. And on the other side are the Israelites who are a bunch of farmers. So they're out there with rakes, they're out there with axes, they're out there with pitchforks, and they're out there without armor. So now you know why when Goliath comes, none of them want to go down and fight this battle because they are not well armed, they are not well trained, they are not an army. This would be like your local men's touch football league playing the Green Bay Packers on a Sunday afternoon. It would not end well. And so here they, do, they are, and they gather in the Valley of Elah. So the Valley of Elah, you see it, it's right there. So why is this so significant? Well, if you look at the terrain where the five major cities are, where the interior of Judah is, this, this is the road that leads the Philistines into Israel. This is a major, major battle because if the Philistines win, then they have free access into Israel to be a thorn in their flesh even more. And if the Israelites win, then they are able to keep the Philistines at bay. And so here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 17 as they gather for battle and Goliath of Gath comes out and they start to describe Goliath in the very beginning. It says he stands, and it's about nine and a half to 11 feet tall. Why the discrepancy there? Well, the reason is because it measures it by cubits. And if you know what a cubit is, a cubit is the measurement from your elbow to the tip of your finger, which for all of us, that's a little bit different, isn't it? It depends on whose hand, whose elbow to finger that is. And so, so somewhere between nine and a half and 11 feet tall, well-armored, looking invincible, standing as a superior, formidable foe against Israel. But the truth is, Israel had a giant. And just like Goliath was called the champion of the Philistines, Israel had a champion. It's just their champion wasn't on the battlefield. Where was their champion? Well, the reason we know that Israel had a giant that was well-armed is because we hear the description of that giant. If you have your Bibles open, turn back just a little bit to 1 Samuel chapter 10. And in verses 23 and 24, you actually see who this giant is. Verse 23, it says this. So then they, the people, ran and took Saul from there. And when Saul stood among the people, Saul was taller than any of the people from his shoulder up. Saul was their giant. Saul stood taller than any of the people from the shoulder up, and he was well-armed. 1 Samuel chapter 13, if you turn there, starting in verse 19, it says, and, and here's why you also know Israel was not well-armed. Now there was no blacksmith to be found among all of the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Israelites, the Hebrews, make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And then it talks about how they would charge them for these things. 
Verse 22, so on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and his son Jonathan had them. They had a well-armed giant who was their champion, Saul. But Saul, instead of going out to the battlefield, we hear what Saul is doing in verse 11. It says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. Saul was not on the battlefield because Saul was in fear. And now enters David. David's father, Jesse, says to David, David, I want you to leave the flocks and here is some food. So take your brothers some lunch and and here's some food for the commanders and take this food to the commanders of the army. And the reason they would often do that is, is if they gave food to the commanders of the army, it was kind of like a bribe to say, hey, can you keep my sons safe? Put them in the the, the better positions so that they're not in the fiercest part of the battle. And, And so David goes out and he runs out to, the, to bring the food to them. And as he runs to bring the food to them, he begins to see what is taking place with Goliath. And in the midst of this, there's this really cool detail that I believe that sometimes we pass. I think it's amazing the details that we find in Scripture that reveal the difference between someone who's after God's heart and someone who's not. Read, uh, look at 1 Samuel chapter 17 in verse 22. It says, And David left the things, the stuff he brought, in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brother. You would think, why is that detail important? Well, if you look back at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 22, as Saul is going to be anointed king of Israel, verse 22 says this, So they, the people of God, inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord says, Behold, Saul has hidden himself among the baggage. Do you see the comparison there? Saul is about to be anointed king of Israel, and he's hiding among the baggage. And David is called to go to the front to bring food, And he says in the midst of the enemy that he leaves his stuff with the baggage and runs to the front line. Saul hides and David steps up. The difference between a man after God's heart and one who is not. And so uh, David goes to the front and he hears what's going on. and, And then we hear the first words that David ever speaks in the scriptures. Verse 26. And it says, and David says to the man who stood there, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Do you hear the confidence in those words? It's not like David is asking a question of, of, is it possible to defeat him? He's like, so once I kill this guy, what do I get? And they tell him, you, you, you get three things. Uh, you get the king's daughter in marriage. You get a lot of riches. And you will, or your family will be free in Israel. What that means is you won't have to pay taxes. He says, you get those three things. He's, so he's like, all right, sounds like a good deal. His brothers are not happy that he says this. And one of his brothers kind of scolds him. Why are you speaking this way? And David's like, am I not able to speak? Can, can I even say a word? And can you notice something else in this? As David says this, he goes on and he says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Do you see the disdain? that David has for the Philistine? He doesn't even give him a name, does he? He says, who is this uncircumcised, ungodly, unholy, unclean Philistine 
that defies not the armies of Israel, but defies the armies of the living God. Do you see the difference in how they saw it? Saul's like, I just defy Israel. David's like, you don't defy Israel, you defy God. You defy the armies of the living God. So David's like, someone needs to go to battle. Saul hears these words and Saul calls David in and and as Saul calls David in, David says that these words, these are such significant words, starting in verse 34. Before we do that, look at verse 32. It says, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of him. What does David contribute this to? This is a matter of the heart. And David was called a man who was after God's heart. It's about the heart. And the problem is Saul's heart had failed him. We know that from verse 11 where it says that Saul was greatly afraid. We know that in the next words of Saul where Saul says to him, you are not able to against the Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. Saul's heart had failed him. And then David says these significant words in verse 34. He says, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when he came, a lion, a bear, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. If he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who has delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. What an amazing proclamation of faith. To say, you know what? This uncircumcised Philistine is no better than any lion or bear that I have already faced. And as I defeated them, so God will allow me to defeat him. See, Saul believed that the victory was only able or possible by worldly weapons, but David understood the promise of God that no weapon formed against us will prevail, that if we put on the armor of God, we will be able to withstand the evil day, that we are more than victorious through Christ who gives us strength. Saul had lost heart and David took heart. He understood the power of the promises of God. He says, as God protected my father's flock of sheep through me, my father in heaven will protect his flock of Israel through me. In fact, think about it this way. When Saul looked at the battlefield, what did Saul see? He saw a giant, didn't he? When David looked at the battlefield, what did David see? He saw God. You see the difference? Saul saw the giant. David saw God. Saul focused on the power of the Philistine Goliath. David focused on the power of the promises of God. The promises in Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 23 and Exodus 14 that God will go before you and he will fight your battles and he will give you victory. David knew it wasn't about Goliath, but it was all about God. And so Saul takes David, who's going to go out to battle, and he says, all right, if you're going to go out to battle, you need some armor. So remember, Saul, Saul's a giant, right? And Saul says, here's my armor to little David. Could you imagine a little boy 
trying to put on a giant's armor. There's no way he's carrying that armor out to battle. So David says, so sorry, I, I can't do this. So he takes the tools that God had already given to him, a sling, and he found five stones. Here's another interesting detail in the scriptures. If you go back to Judges, uh, Judges chapter 20, you actually find out that those who are from the tribe of Benjamin, David not from Benjamin, Judah, but, but those from the tribe of Benjamin were expert slingers. Do you know what tribe Saul came from? Benjamin. Do you know who was the expert slinger? Saul. And yet it wasn't Saul, but David who took the sling and went to the front battle line. And he goes out there to fight, and as he goes out there to fight, Saul sees him, and Saul, or no, Goliath sees him, and Goliath is offended. Why would you send this boy with sticks? Am I a dog? What, what is this? And he begins to curse David by his gods in verse 44. Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David says to him, what amazing words. He says, says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that the Lord is God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Do you know these are the words that you can say to your enemy? Whatever enemy you face on your battlefield, that you can proclaim these words to that enemy. Would you read those words in yellow? And, and as you read those words, the, 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 the first part in yellow, I want you to picture the enemy that's on your battlefield. Whether that enemy is cancer, or it is brokenness in your family, uh, or it is an overwhelming debt, or it is some struggle that you are facing right now, a diagnosis you've received from a doctor, whatever that enemy is, I want you to picture that enemy as you proclaim these words this day to the enemy that calls your name on the battlefield. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Jew, in the midst of this, David does not minimize the threat of the giant, but he realizes the God who is with him. David does not minimize the threat of the giant. He realizes the God who is with him. Because giants are still deadly. But David understood that that giant was already dead. Do you know that's what the cross proclaims to us? That the giants in your life are deadly. Jesus went to the cross for them. But the giants in your life are dead. If Jesus defeated the greatest giants of our life, sin, death, and hell on the cross, if he has already defeated the greatest giants that could ever stand against us, what chance do any other giants have in our life? Because the greatest ones are already dead. You know, we all face giants. 
And many times we think those giants are much bigger than we are, even when they're not. I'm reminded of that picture when I think back to a time when I took a group of youth to a youth retreat in the mountains of Tennessee, Coker Creek Village. We were up in the mountains and had a great week together. At the end of our trip, uh, the boys had their dorm at the top of the hill, the girls at the bottom of the hill, and, and we're gathering our stuff up, packing up to head out and head back to uh, Northern Illinois, Rockford, uh, Belvedere, where I served at that time. And as we're doing that, uh, packing up and putting things on the bus, I'm up by the guy's dorm, and, and I hear this scream come from the girl's dorm. Like, what is going on? Did somebody break something? Did somebody hurt themselves? So I'm booking it down the hill, and as I'm booking it down the hill to the girls' dorm to figure out what's going on, the girls come just streaming out of their dorm room, screaming, and I get down there, and they go, there's a spider! Like, okay. So I went into the room. Oh, there was a spider. It was huge, and it looked like it was pregnant, and we found it, inside of and at the bottom of one of the girls' sleeping bags, to which they're like, was it with us the whole time? Was it sleeping? And I go, did you get bit? No, then it doesn't really matter, right? Because we're leaving, so it's okay. So, so we took it and we threw it out and we just threw it into nature. I didn't crush it or kill it. I put it back in nature. But you know, those girls, I mean, that might've been a huge spider, but those girls were much bigger than the spider. But they didn't feel that way in that moment, did they? You know, the giants that we face, because God is on our side, we are much bigger than them, even though we don't feel that in the moment. And there is no such thing as a gentle giant, and there is no such thing as a small giant. Giants are big, and they are deadly. I know there are times where I talk with you as God's people, and about giants that are in your life. And, and, and sometimes I'll hear the phrase, you know what, I know that, that this is an overwhelming thing, but you know what, others have it worse off than I do. But that doesn't make your giant any less real. And that doesn't make your giant any less deadly. And yet we know that while that giant calls out to you in the midst of your battlefield, calling you to battle, believing that it will destroy you, God has already told you that He is out in the midst of that battlefield, that He has taken to the field for you. David saw God everywhere. And in David, we see that faith focuses on the power of the promises of God in the midst of the problems that we face in our life. And to be a man and a woman after God, it means to have a faith that focuses not on the giants of our life, but on the giant who has defeated the giants in our life. The champion who has already taken to the battlefield for you and for me. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus has, great, has, has defeated the greatest giants of our life, sin, death, and hell. And if he has already defeated them, what chance do any other giants have in our life? As a man and a woman who have a heart after God, our heart focuses on the power and the promises of God. So what promises in the midst of the giants that you face do you need to hold on to today? What do you need to cling on to? Is it the promise that God is with you always? Is it the promise of Romans 8, 28, 
that God will work all things for the good of those who call upon his name? Is it the promise that God will work all things according to his plan? God speaks his promise into your life this day so that your faith may focus not on the giant, but on the God who stands above your giant and the promises that he makes to you in Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a faith that focuses on the power of the promises of God. And many times, the voice that speaks most loudly is the voice of the giant. And we are so distracted by that voice of the giant that we miss the fact that you are already on that battlefield and you have already won the victory for us and you have already gone before us. So Lord, give us a heart like David, a heart that sees that you are already there. And our giant may be deadly, but that giant is already dead for you have won the victory for us before we have even reached the battlefield. Give us a faith, we pray, that focuses on the power of your promises in the midst of the giants of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.